All right, open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 2, verse 25. So I think when we announced that we were doing the Bare Naked uh, series, Grizzly Truth About Love, Sex, and Other Stuff, I'm pretty sure this is the night that everybody was really excited about. Because uh, Genesis 2.25, we know where we ended last week, this is where we're picking up this week. And uh, Genesis 2.25, it says, actually I'll give you a second to get there, page two. If you got it, say got it. All right, here we go. It says, and the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Now I got to be honest. Knowing that we're going to be talking about this this week, uh, I had a lot of things on my mind, but, but one of the things was this childhood memory that I, that I have came back and has totally haunted me all week long, knowing that we're going to be talking about this. Uh, when I was about eight years old, one of my best friends who uh, had lived on the same street as me in Mesquite, Texas, uh, moved to Austin, Texas. Now, Austin is a little bit more weird than, than Mesquite, uh, and so we would go visit them sometimes, and we experienced some of this weirdness, and, and when we went down there, uh, there's a lake called Lake Travis, uh, and, and they had a boat, and uh, it was about the first or second year that we had gone down there, uh, or that they had gone down there, that we went to go visit them on this particular occasion, and we went out on the boat on Lake Travis, and so we're hanging out, both his family and my family, and just so you know, this, this guy, my friend, his name is Joel, uh, his dad's name is also Joel, so we called them Big Joel and Little Joel. And so Big Joel was driving the boat. And we get to a point where Big Joel says to Little Joel, hey, Little Joel, you want to drive the boat? Now, any eight or nine-year-old kid is going to say what? Duh, yeah. So he takes the wheel to this boat. And, and at, the point, at that point, like our boat, we've been driving this one direction for a while. And, and, and so the boat was like parked or whatever it's called when you're in the water. And he does a complete 180, turns it around, and then just puts it on full throttle. And we start going the complete opposite direction. Now, there's, there's a few bad things about this situation I want to share with you. First of all, you know, we, we drove for a little bit. Once we started driving for a little bit and went to a totally different part of the lake, uh, three things you need to know that were terrible about this situation. One, this boat was going at about warp speed, uh, and you had an eight, nine-year-old driving it. Two, uh, we are facing uh, directly uh, a beach. We are going straight for a beach. Now, we're not like in, you know, the death zone of needing to stop and bail at this point, but we are clearly heading for the beach. Three, uh, there is a man uh, laying out on a raft, uh, completely oblivious to this boat that is, that is barreling down towards him in between us and the beach. Uh, and we're continuing to go towards him. And, and I guess everybody on the boat was like, little Joel knows what he's doing. I mean, he's a nine-year-old. Uh, and so nobody said anything. And we get a little bit closer and closer and closer. And then there's a fourth thing I want to share with you that's really terrible about this situation. When we got closer to where this man was, we, we, we realized uh, this guy... Uh, looked like a very innocent, uh, probably 50, 60-year-old man, uh, completely calm, completely oblivious, completely relaxed, in fact, completely comfortable, hands behind his head, completely sprawled out on his raft, and completely naked. Uh, And so we're getting closer and closer and closer, and I'm thinking, oh my gosh, we're going to kill this naked man. (laughs) And we get to a point where we literally brush right by this guy. He didn't die. But in the moment, I'm thinking, oh my gosh, we just, we just killed this guy. We get right by him, and as soon as we get right by him, Joel, little Joel, he cuts the engine and the boat stops. Now, a couple things going through my mind. First thing, I know killing somebody is really bad. Uh, killing somebody in a boat, specifically a 50-year-old naked man uh, on a raft, peacefully enjoying himself in the middle of a lake on a boat, that's got to be really bad. Uh, that's the first thing. Second thing going through my mind was, wait a second, why is there a 50-year-old naked man laying on a raft in the middle of this lake? Uh, and so uh, at this point, I think everybody on the boat started to th- think the same thing. And it's about that point that we realized wh- what was going on and why Joel, little Joel, had turned the boat around. Uh, we were now parked right in front of the nude beach at Lake Travis. 
and all of the people on the nude beach were very concerned about their uh, naked friend. And so they're all running to the edge of the water, uh, seeing what had happened. And, and I cannot get this image out of my head. It's disgusting. But there was a guy who comes up and there's this big rock and he just goes, just like that. And I share that with you because these people were naked and, and, and totally unashamed. And, and there's something though, when you look at that picture and you look at the picture Genesis 2:25, they were both totally naked and totally unashamed. There's something drastically different between these two pictures. Uh, one is a picture of sex and nakedness the way that God designed for it to be. And the other is one example of many examples of how culture has robbed sex and nakedness of its originally intended meaning, design, and purpose and replaced it with something completely different. And as I was studying this week, uh, this, this statement I'm about to share with you really hit me. And I want you to know I'm sharing this with you. It hit me. It hit me not because it's like cool sounding, uh, makes it me or whoever's quoting it sound smart or anything like that. Like I'm sharing with, with you and it, and it struck me because as we're going to see tonight, it's very true. A guy named Justin Taylor, uh, who co-wrote the book Sex and the Supremacy of God, said, Sex is designed to be a pointer to, not a substitute for, God. And the reality is, our culture has turned sex into a God. In some ways, very similar to some of these ancient cultures that, you know, we've talked about, seen before, have turned or had turned sex into a God. I mean, you had these big temples that people go and quote-unquote worship at, essentially have massive orgies and have sex with these prostitutes there. But, but you look at our culture, and our culture has turned sex into a god. I mean, TV, and I'm not saying, ooh, TV's evil, throw your TV out the window. I'm not saying that, but like, you look at TV. And I, I promise I didn't watch The Bachelor this week, I didn't have time. But those of you who did, you can see how The Bachelor is one example of, of a show that is completely focused or centered around this idea of sex being a god. I mean, I look at all the shows that I've loved to watch my entire life, like Friends, Going Old School, or shoot, Saved by the Bell, or uh, Going Way Back, shoot, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, I mean, Raphael, and all those people. Like, all those shows, to some extent, are, are, are centered around this idea of sex. Music is the same way. I got on iTunes today just to see what were the top ten singles. And nine of those top ten singles all had one thing in common, this common thread of sex. You go on iTunes today. Uh, the very first, I promise, this is the very first thing that popped up, I didn't search for this, uh, was a big picture that said Justin Bieber had just released an acoustic album today. I don't know if some of you may know that, but uh, I, I clicked on it, innocently clicked on it, and, and I just want to read to you the lyrics, part of the lyrics of one of his songs, the song, As Long As You Love Me. It says, as long as you love me, we could be starving, we could be homeless, we could be broke. As long as you love me, I'll be your platinum, I'll be your silver, I'll be your gold. I knew y'all were faking like you didn't know what I was talking about. <laughs> as long as you love, la, 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 love, love, la, 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 love, la, 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 love me, love me. And then he goes on at the very end of the song, he says, he says this, I don't know if this makes sense. That's what he says. I don't know if this makes sense, but you're my hallelujah. Uh, which at that point, I want to be like, well, no, actually that doesn't make sense, Justin. Uh, what do you mean? But music is centered around sex. Internet is ruled by sex. Pornography, every second, $3,075.64 is being spent on pornography. Every second, 28,258 internet users are viewing pornography. Every second, 372 internet users are typing adult search terms into search engines. Every 39 minutes, a new pornographic video is being created in the United States. And these stats are from six years ago, which means it has drastically 
different today. Everybody's fascinated with it. Youth and, and, and the college culture, combine, I hate to combine you with youth, I feel like that's a diss, but taking youth and the, and the college culture, combining those two cultures, if the statistics are true that I'm, that I'm seeing all over this research, then that, then that means that 60 to 75% of the people in this room, unmarried, have already had sex in their life. But it's not just the college and the youth. Like, your parents and your grandparents are fascinated with it too. Like, they're doing it. Get that image in your mind. <laughs> and you know how I know this. I know this because, I know this because Viagra's not spending millions of dollars on commercials for nothing. Our, our entire culture is fascinated by sex. Sex is God in our culture. It's what consumes our thoughts. It's what consumes our checkbooks, spending it on pornography, spending our, our money on tanning, or spending our money on gym memberships, or all these other things, dates. Uh, it, it consumes our checkbooks. It consumes our time. It consumes our lives. And so tonight, there's three things I want to do. One, I want to show you how sex was designed to point us to God. Two, I want to show you how we make ourselves so vulnerable to sexual sin. And three, I'm going to yell at the men in the room for a little bit, so I hope you guys brought your cups because it'll hurt if you didn't. <laughs> so let's start with number one. Sex was designed by God to point us to God. Sex was designed by God to point us to God. And remember everything that we've talked about up to this point. I mean, at this point, we are, we are still only on page two of this 1,000-page story. I mean, tonight we'll, we'll get to page three, but still, page two and three. And, and what we've seen the past two, now the third week, is that everything in the beginning, everything that happens in the beginning, what? It foreshadows what's going to happen in the end. And everything that we see is going to happen in the end ultimately brings clarity to what happened in the beginning. But more important, I think, than any of that is what happened in the beginning and what will happen in the end helps us understand or gives meaning to what's happening right now. And this is exactly true in regard to sex. You look at uh, chapter 2, verse 25. It says, And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Now the Hebrew word there for naked is the word arom. Everybody say arom. No, no, no. You've got to roll your R's. Arom. That was good. Section over here, really good. Arom. You know what that word in Hebrew actually means? Naked. They were naked. They were naked. Naked. But then you read further and it says they were also not ashamed. You know what the Hebrew word for not ashamed is? Boosh. <laughs> Everybody say that. Boosh. It's <laughs> pretty good. So, a better translation of this is Adam and Eve walk up. Yeah, we're naked. Boosh. <laughs> yeah, we're naked and I don't care. That's what's happening in this text. We're naked and we are not ashamed. And, and, and I think it's safe to say that the fact that they are both naked and not ashamed means that they had already had sex. They were probably having sex and they were probably planning on having more sex. In fact, you can know for sure by looking at Genesis 2, 24, it says they had been united with each other. They'd become one, which means they had had sex. I guarantee you they were not just playing tag in the garden to keep themselves entertained. <laughs> Maybe tackle or something like that. <laughs> but you look at how the picture drastically changes. Listen. You look at how the picture drastically changes in just seven verses because you fast forward now to verse seven and look at this. It says, then the eyes of both 
were opened and they knew that they were naked. And then it says, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Now stop there. I want to get to verse 8, but stop there for a second. Uh, when I was in college, I, I, I was in a fraternity. I've shared that with you before. And I was at this one, I, I went to this one costume party. It was my fraternity hosting it with other people. And I'm there. Uh, and early on in the party, one of my pledge brothers comes up to me, uh, walks through the hall. I hadn't seen him yet. He walks in and uh, he's wearing nothing but uh, an oak leaf that he has uh, somehow fashioned to the front of him. And I'm like, dude, what are you doing? And he goes, Wadlo, you of all people should know what this is. It's Adam. Adam and Eve. And as he says that first thing I'm thinking is, I really hope Eve is not here tonight. Uh, but the second thing I thought was, dude, and I said this to him, I was like, I was like, dude, I think you misinterpreted the text. One, fig leaf, not a little oak leaf, huge difference. Two, it said they sowed fig leaves, implying multiple fig leaves uh, together, not just one little tiny oak leaf. And he, and he goes, well, what's done's done. He turns around and walks out. <laughs> but, but Adam and Eve, they, they take these leaves and they cover themselves up. And then look at what happens. Verse 8, it says, And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. I mean, they go in just a few verses from being not ashamed to running and hiding and diving behind trees and bushes because they were ashamed. But why were they ashamed? Sin. They were ashamed because of sin. Sin and shame are linked together at the core. And prior to sin, they had nothing to hide, but the entrance of sin totally changed that. They go from naked and not caring to naked and running for cover. Uh, when I was in high school, we had the senior banquet. And at the senior banquet, they brought in a hypnotist. Has anybody ever been hypnotized or seen a hypnotist? Okay. Well, it was crazy. I'd never seen it before. And I, didn't, I, I was like, this is fake. It's not going to happen. Well, this dude hypnotized these people. Uh, there were 15 of them up on stage, or about 15 on stage. And he hypnotizes them to the point where at any point in the show, he could just say, go to sleep. And they would just be like, they go to sleep, whatever they were doing. Well, he did a lot of crazy stuff. I'll share some of that with you another time. Uh, but this one particular thing he did, he said, okay, uh, y'all are all at the flyest party ever. And there's some super awesome music playing and y'all are all just going to be dancing like crazy. Now, I'm just going to be honest. I went to a school of mostly white people, and so this was a very hard thing for me to watch because uh, it was just bad. And so, anyways, he says, uh, all right, wake up. And so they wake up, and I guess in their mind they hear this music, and, you know, all the white people start dancing, whatever. And, uh, and so then he says, all right, go to sleep. And so they're dancing all of a sudden, you know, they just kind of do this where they're standing. And then he says, okay, in a second, I'm going to wake you up. And when I wake you up, you're all going to be naked. Wake up. Everybody's like, oh, no, he didn't. Uh, he says, wake up. And so wake up. They hear the music, and they're all like dancing. It takes them a little bit first to realize. And all of a sudden, people start looking down. Like, oh, my gosh. And, and so 14 of the 15 go running off stage where there are some chairs on stage. They jump behind the chairs. They're like doing this, you know, walking like this with chairs in the front, chairs in the back. But there's one guy, one of the 15, who looks down, and he's like, huh. And he just kind of keeps on dancing <laughs> like that. And, and I, you know, I thought about that this week in, in, in looking at this because I, th I think that's a perfect picture. I love this picture. But because remember, what happens in the beginning foreshadows what happens in the end. And what happens or will happen in the end clarifies what happened in the beginning. And what happened in the beginning and what will happen in the end gives meaning to what's happening right now. 
And one day, all of us will stand fully exposed before God. One day, all of us will stand before God completely naked. And I'm not saying this in like God's a perverted kind of God kind of way. I'm saying that we will not be able to hide anything from him. All of the layers that we are using to cover up who we really are on the inside in this moment will be stripped away and there will be nothing to hide who we really are when we stand in front of God. We will be bare naked and the grisly truth about us will come out. But what you have to see is this. The only way that we will be able to stand naked and unashamed before God is if we've first been married to God through Christ. And and I don't know if you're seeing this. I mean, this is week three. If you're not seeing this yet, then let me just go ahead and point it out to you. I don't know if you're realizing this, but but as we get deeper into this study on love and sex and marriage and relationships and all this other stuff, it's becoming so incredibly clear that marriage is the most perfect picture and example of the gospel that God has ever given to us. Which leads to a really important thing for us to understand. Because marriage is the most clear and perfect picture that God has given to us to help us understand what Jesus has done for us, then doesn't it make sense that Satan would do whatever he could to destroy that picture? And you read further and you see what begins to happen. Verse 1, chapter 3 of Genesis. It says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. Now what we find out as we read further is that this serpent was either Satan himself or Satan working through an animal, a snake. It says this serpent was more crafty. This isn't crafty like arts and crafty, like there's a snake up in the tree taking these leaves and going, (laughs) origami. It's not what it is. This is like crafty in, in the sense of manipulation. He's manipulative, shrewd, sneaky, sly, deceitful, destructive. And there's two big lies that Satan is successfully feeding our culture. One is that marriage is optional. Two is that sex is just physical. I want to look at those both, both those lies really quick. He says, one, marriage is optional. The truth is, marriage is essential. You remember last week, we, we went to Ephesians chapter 5, verse 31 and 32, because in Ephesians 5, 31, Paul, he quotes what we were studying, chapter 2, verse 24, last week. And so he says, Therefore, man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, he says in verse 32, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. What we saw last week is the way that we view marriage is a direct reflection of our understanding of the gospel. I quoted a guy last week named Tim Keller. He said, the gospel helps us to understand marriage, and marriage helps us to understand the gospel. This is the secret that the gospel of Jesus and the marriage and marriage explain one another. That when God invented marriage, he already had the saving work of Jesus in mind. And a lot of people in our culture, they're starting to say, and they've been saying for a while, marriage? Like, why do we even need marriage? What's the purpose of marriage? We don't need marriage. And if that's you, what that clearly reveals is that you don't understand the gospel. And listen to this. If Satan can get you to believe the lie that marriage is unessential to you being united with a woman or with a man, 
then he can get you to believe the lie that Jesus is unessential to you being united with God. And we'll see this more next week, but as soon as they sinned in the garden, they were kicked out and cut off from God. And that doesn't change until years later when Jesus shows up and he fixes that through the cross. So Satan says marriage is optional, but the truth is marriage is essential. Second lie is sex is only physical, but the truth is sex is not just physical, sex is spiritual. John Piper said in in this book, Sex and the Supremacy of God, he said, God made us powerfully sexual so that he would be more deeply knowable. We were given the power to know each other sexually so that we might have some hint of what it will be like to know Christ supremely. Uh, I was in Glorieta, New Mexico a few years ago in uh, Conference Collegiate Week. Some of you have gone to this with me. And I was helping lead uh, the, the junior breakout community group. They don't do it like this anymore if you've gone. But, uh, so I had, a, I had a room full of about, about this many people, about 300, 400 people. And uh, I had a partner. And I don't remember the context of the conversation, but I remember what happened very clearly. Uh, one of the students in the middle of this conversation, basically we would have these small groups and then bring it to the big group and kind of discuss big group, small group style. So they had just finished in their small groups and then brought it back to the big group and I opened it up for people to make comments to the whole group. At which time, a guy stands up, and again, I don't remember the context of this conversation or study, but he stands up and he says, basically what this is saying is, uh, we have sex with God. Uh, now, I had a partner helping me uh, lead, a, a girl who used to be at um, college ministry in LSU. She immediately just burst out in laughter, almost rolling on the ground. I'm sitting here thinking, why the heck does this always happen to me? Somebody stands up and says something terrible, and now I've got to fix the problem. But he says, I, I think what this is saying is that we have sex with God. He says that confidently. And so she's laughing, and I'm trying to figure out what to say. So I, 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 I jumped in and said, I think what he's trying to say, though he's wrong, uh, what he's trying to say is that God calls us in to an intimate relationship with him. Sex is not just physical. To have sex is to know and to be known. When you look at some biblical examples, Matthew 1, 24 through 25 says, when Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son. In other words, they didn't have sex. Genesis 4.1, just a, the very next page, what we're studying tonight, says, Now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain. Now I'm pretty sure that doesn't mean like Adam and Eve are sitting there having like this really in-depth conversation and then bam, Eve's pregnant. <laughs> to have sex is to know and to be known. We were created to know and be known by God. John 17, 3, Jesus says, and this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Matthew 7, 21 through 23 says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name? In other words, people are going to be coming out of a setting like this where we're singing and we're raising our hands and we're shouting praises to God. And then people like people in this room are going to be standing before God one day and he's going to say, dude, I never knew you. You read on verse 23. He says, and then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Sex was designed by God to point us to God. 
Sex isn't just physical, it's spiritual. Marriage isn't optional, it's essential. Second thing I wanna show you tonight. We're most vulnerable to sexual sin when all we have is a secondhand relationship with God. We're most vulnerable to sexual sin when all we have is a secondhand relationship with God. Look at, um, look at Genesis 3, verse 1. It says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. Verse 5, For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. There's a few quick observations I want to make from, from these six verses. First, Satan shows up out of nowhere. I'm like, he makes no noticeable entrance. He doesn't get any sort of introduction. He just, he just shows up. Everything is going unbelievably perfect. It's not like he gives this warning that he's coming. It's not like he gives us a heads up. He just shows up. That's how Satan works. I was talking to somebody yesterday. They, they really gave me some good insight into this. Satan will do everything he can to pull you and your spouse apart after marriage. Exhibit A right here. He will do everything he can to pull you and your spouse apart after marriage. The reverse of that is true as well. Satan will do everything he can to push you and the person you are dating together before marriage. He'll do everything he can to push you together closer than you ever should be before marriage because he wants to do whatever he can to destroy marriage. Because if he can destroy marriage, he can eliminate the most perfect picture God has given us of the gospel. He shows up out of nowhere. Observation number two. Satan asks manipulative questions. Look at the second half of verse one. It says, he said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? First, I don't know if you noticed this in reading this, but he says God. Up to this point, the entire time that man had been created, beginning in chapter two, verse three, how was God being addressed? Not God, Lord God, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, God. Lord God meaning creator God, meaning powerful God, meaning holy God, meaning great God. And then Satan comes on the scene and he just says God. As if to strip him of his holiness, his greatness, and as if to say that his ways, his reasoning, his thoughts are not millions of miles higher than our thoughts. It's the first thing he does. The second way he, he does this or manipulates this question is he manipulates God's word with this question that I think is very familiar to all of us. He says, did God really say that? I mean, does this not sound super familiar to you? Did God really say that you can't have sex before you're married? Did God really say that you shouldn't live together before you're married? Did God really say that you shouldn't have oral sex before you're married? Did he really say that oral sex is even sex at all? Did God really say that you shouldn't masturbate with each other before you're married? 
Did God really say that you shouldn't feel up your girlfriend or feel down your boyfriend before you're married? Did he really say that stuff? I'm pretty sure it just got awkward in here. (laughs) But he manipulates these questions. Did God really say that? Observation number three, Eve engages in the conversation. James 4, 7 says this, Submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Entertaining a conversation with the devil is the absolute worst thing that we can do. Recognize his manipulative mannerisms and run. Did God really say that? That is one of his trademarks. And look what happens. Eve is already losing this battle. She's already been manipulated. She says, God, notice that? Stripping God of his holiness, his power. She focuses on the location of the tree rather than the significance of it. And then she actually, in trying to quote what God had said, she actually adds to it something that wasn't even in there originally. Now we'll come back to why that happened here in a second, but observation number four, Satan sets the hook and reels Eve in. Look at verse four. It says, but the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. So, when the woman saw the tree was good for food and there was a delight to the eyes, that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate it. James 1, 14 and 15 says this, but each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, gives birth uh, to death. I don't know if anybody in here likes to fish. I love to fish, and we're coming up on one of the coolest seasons to fish in because it's almost spawning season. And there's one point in spawning season where the fish will spawn really close to the banks in really shallow water, which is great if you can catch them at the right time because uh, you can pull your boat right up to their spawning. And when I say spawning, it means like these uh, female fish have laid their eggs in like this bed, and they just sit on the bed. And they're extremely protective of the bed. And sometimes you can catch them when they're so shallow that you can pull up in a boat right up next to them and they're not going to move because that's their little, ch- little children, little babies, uh, baby eggs, whatever. And, and you can, if you know what I'm talking about, fishermen, you can Texas rig a lizard uh, and you can throw it out there and you can start above the, the nest or the bed and just slowly kind of jig it onto the nest. And it's very likely you won't even get it to the nest because what is that fish going to do? I mean, if it's really shallow, it's cool. You can watch. Like, here's the little bloop, 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 lizard. And then you got this fish. And he's going to, you know, as soon as he, she, whatever it is, sees uh, this lizard, you can watch the fish just slowly go and, and take it in his mouth. And it's kind of fun because you can just sit there and be like, yeah, tastes good. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then you just go, boom, and you set the hook. And as soon as you set the hook, it's just like, whoa. And that fish starts freaking out, flopping everywhere, and you just reel in the boat throw it back in, they go back to the bed, and you just do it again all day until it just gets tired. (laughs) But that's exactly a picture of of what's happening here is is Satan, he's dangled this bait in front of Eve, gotten her attention. Instead of not engaging with that and turning and running, she continues to look at it, converse with it, takes the bait, and then Satan sets the hook, reels her in. But here's my question. Why was Eve so vulnerable to being fooled by Satan? I think the fact that she misquotes God back in verse 2 and 3 
And the fact that she focuses on the location of the tree, not the significance of the tree, gives us a little bit of a hint. Go back to Genesis chapter 2, verse 15. It says, The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Look at the beginning of verse 16. And the Lord God commanded who? The man. The Bible implies that Eve had only heard this command from God secondhand through Adam. Which takes us back to my point that we are most vulnerable to sexual sin when all we have is a secondhand relationship with God. Romans 1, 28 and 29 says, Furthermore, since they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, he gave them over to a depraved mind to do whatever or to do what ought not to be done. They have become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. There's a lot of verses to use to, to show this, but I'll, I'll, I'll just do one more. John chapter 8, verse 31 and 32 says, To the Jews who had believed in him, Jesus said, If you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples. Then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Let me ask you something. Do you really know what God has said in his word? Or are you just taking my word for it? Like, do you really know what God has said in his word? Or are you just accepting whatever the person who wrote the book that you're reading about the Bible said God said in his word? Do you really know what God says in his word? Or are you just taking for granted what the, what the people in the podcast you're listening to have said? I mean, it's great that you're coming to Overflow. It's great that so many of you have gotten plugged into communities, small groups, where you're going to dig into the Word more and do stuff. I mean, it's great that you're coming to life groups. It's great that you're reading these books that are about the Bible. It's great that you're listening to these podcasts. But nothing can replace a firsthand relationship with God through His Word. And the reality is, all of those other things, you're receiving God's Word secondhand. It's already been processed, already been digested food. It's like you're drinking milk just all your life. And can you imagine, like, as a 20-something-year-old, just drinking milk, that's all you had? This is what makes you so vulnerable. You need a first-hand relationship with Jesus. Without one, you are extremely vulnerable and weak. So did God really say these things? I mean, did he really say don't have sex before marriage, and all these other things. I mean, how are you to know what God really says about those questions unless you have a firsthand relationship with God? If you did have a firsthand relationship with him, you would, you would so quickly realize how foolish it is that those questions are even on the table. Are you hearing what I'm saying? If you really had a first-hand relationship with God, you would so quickly realize how foolish it is that those questions are on the table. At all. And the fact that so many of you in this room, so many of us in this room have justified in our minds and shown we've justified in our minds through our actions that so many of these things are okay shows that if we know God at all, we don't know him very well.
We're most vulnerable to sexual sin when all we have is a secondhand relationship with God. Third thing. To the men in the room. It's time for you to grow up. First thing I want to say is this. I love you guys. Seriously. I'm so thankful for every single guy that is in this room tonight. And let me tell you why. When I first came here to Denton, this ministry was about 10% guys and 90% girls. You are a huge answered prayer to the fact that you are in this room. And, and girls, hear me. I'm extremely thankful for y'all. And my prayer is that we continue to have tons and tons and tons and tons of girls fill this worship center. But I'm really glad to not be leading a women's ministry anymore. <laughs> so I'm thankful for you guys. Secondly, I want to say to you guys is this. I know that many, if not most of you guys, do not have a father who has modeled for you what it looks like to be a godly man. So what I want to say to you first is you do have a father in heaven who is gracious enough to forgive you and gracious enough to change you. Now, look at Genesis chapter 3, verse 2. He said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the, of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Five times in those few verses, you see the word you. One time, you see the word your. Every single time you see the word you and your, it's plural. It's not a singular you. Why do you think that is? Satan is talking to Eve saying you plural. It's because he's not just talking to Eve. You look at verse 6. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and then what? And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. Where was Adam this whole time? Right next to Eve. Now let me just pause and say this. You can't blame Adam for what happens in verse 6. I don't know a single man in this room that could resist a naked woman holding fruit and offering it to him. <laughs> but the reality is, Adam should have spoken up long before verse 6. Fellas, you are too passive towards sin. And you are too passive towards your God-given calling to be a leader. And I'm not saying that 100% of the blame for sexual sin falls on you, but I do want you to see this. If you read on, verse 7 and 8, it says they start to cover themselves up because they're ashamed. Verse 8, they run, try to hide in the trees. And verse 9 says, but the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? 
The Lord God called to who? The man. Where are you? You's not plural there. God's going to come for you first. And God's going to hold you responsible. Why? Well, you look at what we saw last week, Ephesians 5.25. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. But we didn't look at verse 26 and 27. Verse 26, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. He's going to hold you responsible because he has called you to leave. Guys, do you realize, do you realize that you're going to be held accountable for how well you spiritually lead your spouse? Do you realize you're going to be held accountable for how well you spiritually lead the girl that you are dating right now? And this creates a huge problem for one of our favorite phrases when we are alone with our girl late at night trying to get romantic and our favorite phrase is, hey, listen, babe, I'm just going to keep on going until you tell me to stop. That is passive and that is pathetic. You're being no different than Esau when he sold his birthright for a measly little pot of stew. You are selling your God-given calling to be a man and to be a leader for one brief moment of pleasure. And we can't storm the gates of hell with our pants around our ankles and our hands up our girlfriend's skirts. And all God is looking for is a few faithful men, just a few faithful men who he can use to rock this campus and to rock this community and to rock your world. He's not looking for all stars. He's looking for faithful, ordinary dudes. And my question is, where are they? Sex was designed by God to point us to God. We're most vulnerable to sexual sin when all we have is a secondhand relationship with God. Fellas, it's time for us to grow up. There's one last thing I want to share with you, and that's this. The reality is, most of us in this room have screwed up. The reality is, is that most of us in this room have a broken past. Which leads to some of these questions. Okay, so what if I have screwed up? What if I'm not a virgin? What if I've done all these other crazy things? Maybe I'm technically cultural standards of version. I haven't had intercourse, but I've done all this other stuff. I mean, what if I've done that? My, what if my past is broken? What if I didn't have a choice? What if I was raped, abused, molested? Look, I've got a lot to hide. I know that's a thought going through many of your minds right now. I've got a lot to hide. What about that? And to you, I want to say, come back next week because we're going to look and see what, and see what happens. Let me pray for us.